You know, last week, what we did, if you weren't here, what we, what we did is we looked at Romans 1, the end of Romans 1. And what we said uh, was that the Apostle Paul taught that the pagans, who are like, the, uh, it's a mouthful, but the, the polytheistic Greco-Roman idol worshipers, what they need more than anything else in the world, what they need is the gospel. And their problem, see, their problem was they suppressed the truth of God. Because it's inconvenient. The idea that uh, God is deserving of our life and worthy of our praise and I don't call the shots and it's not my hopes and my dreams for my life but Jesus redeemed my life and it completely belongs to him. That is an inconvenient truth that the sinful flesh, the human flesh does not like to hear. But the, the kicker is because we're wired by God to worship, even if we choose not to worship the God who is evident before us, Paul says we don't stop worshiping. Instead, what we do is we exchange the truth of God for a lie and we exchange worshiping the creator God for created things. And he actually, what he said, it, what we concluded last week is all the bad behavior that exists in the world is essentially the outworkings of the idolatry that exists in our hearts. It's all idol worship. Uh, misprioritized, disordered loves by which we find our hope, our security, our meaning, our purpose, our value in things ahead. Good things. Ahead of the good, the better God, the good God, the ultimately good God. And now, see, the Christians in Rome, the Jewish Christians, as they were listening to the reading of that first, what we call the first chapter, my guess is that those Christians were probably nodding along the entire way and saying, yes, that is right. The pagans, they're the worst, aren't they? Those people out there, that fallen culture out there, they are the worst and they're, they're lost, they're wicked by nature and they're ruining everything. You know, I was, I was at a conference earlier this week where the theme of the conference, I can't remember the exact theme, but it was something along the lines of evangelizing to a drastically changing culture. And nobody would have said something at the conference like that verbatim. But, you know, I've heard, I've overheard things in conversations before with Christians. When they, they say things along the lines of, yeah, but, oh, man, the culture. Oh, those, those people. Lord Jesus, come quickly because those people out there, are they're ruining everything. They're ruining the world. Things used to be so much better. And um, you know what the Apostle Paul says to that attitude? In chapter 2, he turns the tables a bit and he says, oh, I'm not done. Uh, you are ruining this planet just as much as the people out there. Which is, by the way, it's really offensive for religious people to hear that. Um, the, the idea that your sins are damaging this world just as much as the pagans' sins. And Paul is speaking to, we're going to look at our text here in a minute. I haven't read it and I'll read it as we go along. But in verses 17 to 24, he's addressing how the people he's speaking to are morally decent people. And in verses 25 to 29, he says these are religiously active people. Morally decent, religiously active. And I'll tell you what, those are good things in and of themselves. The temptation, however, for all religious people is to rely on those things for your standing with God. Now, when you turn morality and religious practice, which are good things, into your system of salvation, it's this thing called moralism. And it destroys faith. And it destroys churches. And it's... Uh, 
you know, this, this is the issue tonight, moralism. What is that? Uh, to help us avoid this thing, uh, to help many of us, if you were born and raised in a, <laughs> in, in a church, I guarantee you've struggled with moralism at some point in time in your life. And in order to help us maybe repent of some of our moralism and to find freedom and forgiveness from this, the Apostle Paul teaches us something tonight, which I'm going to break into the following points. We're going to look at our text in the points of false confidence in right teaching, dead orthodoxy in good practices, and salvation that comes from a circumcised Savior. What does that mean? We'll get to it. False confidence in right teaching, dead orthodoxy in good practices, and salvation that comes in this distinctly what he says is a circumcised Savior. First of all, false confidence in right teaching. The opening verses are verses 17 to 24, and here's how they read. Now you... Paul says, you who call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have the law, in the law, the embodiment of the knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, Here's kind of a condemning statement. Do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that you should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? And here's the thing that suggests Paul is saying, yeah, you, have, you are guilty of this. As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, so Paul's coming in pretty hot here when he says, if you call yourself a Jew. My guess is the typical Jewish Christian in the Roman uh, church at the time, if you call yourself a Jew, how dare you? That would be like if I came in and started the sermon tonight and said, well, if you guys really called yourselves Christians, then you would this or this. And some of you would be terribly offended by that, right? And and maybe justifiably so. In fact, I've gotten in trouble. I've been scolded by, by Christians before forever, ever doubting the sincerity of somebody self-labeling as a Christian, which, by the way, is exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing right here. But uh, that idea that you're, you're doubting somebody's sincerity, they call themselves and label themselves this, but the fruit is not seemingly existent in the life. That's what he's coming after. Uh, they're saying, how dare you? Of course I'm a believer. Paul is turning to church-going, Bible-believing, professing Jewish Christians and saying, don't assume that you are fine simply by how you have labeled yourself. He's saying anybody who comes with a Jewish heritage has a natural temptation to find their confidence in their relatively greater knowledge and their relatively better behavior instead of finding their, their confidence in the grace solely of Jesus Christ. In fact, he lists a bunch of things that they find their confidence in that isn't simply the grace of Jesus. And he lists, rattles them off here. In verse 17, he says, you call yourself a Jew. So they find, they find confidence in their labels. Uh, you find confidence and rely on the law. The fact that you simply have the word given to you. You boast about your relationship with God. You're finding your confidence in your past experience with God as a people. 
Uh, you know his law and intellectually agree with what is true. You're finding your confidence in the fact that you intellectually assent and say, yeah, it's true, it's right. You're finding your confidence in your amount of education in the law and how educated and equipped you are in it. You're finding your confidence in the fact that you can recognize the flaws, the moral flaws and errors and beliefs that exist out there in the world. You find your confidence in all of that kind of stuff. Because of those factors, the Jews absolutely believed that they were superior to the pagans. And as a result, Paul says to them instead this. He says, you who teach others, aren't you teaching yourself? And he rattles off a list of sins like stealing and adultery and stuff like that. And he says, as it is written, God's name is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. In other words, you're so proud. You're so proud because your knowledge is relatively better and your behavior is relatively better than the world's and it makes you arrogant. And that arrogance actually makes you worse. You're hurting the name of Christ in the process. Even though your behavior is a little better, even though your knowledge is a little better, because you've gotten arrogant, you're doing more damage to the name of Jesus Christ. Paul is calling them hypocrites. Now, what are, how can Christians potentially become hypocrites who do more damage than good? I think there's an obvious way and a subtle way. The obvious way, we all know this, uh, it's like scandals. So like, for instance, when a Christian pastor is found guilty of, of committing adultery or uh, when an elder in a church is found guilty of embezzling at his, his local business or the, the history of the scars and the stains on the Christian church, things like the Spanish Inquisition and the Crusades and European imperialism and uh, the, the Christians at times being complicit with racism and slavery and the Salem witch trials and even as, you know, even as a Lutheran, some of the things that Luther may have said about the uh, Jews, I've had all of that thrown at me before and those are, those are real scars and they are obvious and they are easy to articulate for people but they're also kind of occasional. You notice they don't happen every day. They're, you have to kind of go through the history to notice them. On the other hand, what the what I think is actually a little bit more subtle and yet drags down the name of Christ perhaps even more is, is this subtle hypocrisy, which is another way of saying subtle idolatry. And you notice Paul makes a very curious statement here in verse 23. He says, who, You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, this is, I had to read a bunch of commentators to figure out exactly what this is saying and I'm pretty confident I understand now though. You know, there's no historical record that the Christians ever robbed pagan temples and they, that they went into pagan temples and they stole gold and silver idols. I don't, either biblical or outside of that, I don't see any specific records of that. That's probably not what he's talking about which means if he's not talking about it literally, he's talking about it metaphorically. You're stealing something from the pagans when it comes to their idolatry. You're stealing their hearts. You're stealing their attitudes. You're stealing the way that they live. And when you look at the nature of the sins that the Apostle Paul is describing here, remember the ones that he said. He mentioned stealing. He mentioned adultery. It, it very clearly, almost every commentator I read will say, this sounds exactly like what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? Some of you, this will strike you as familiar. Remember when he says, anybody who looks at a woman lustfully is guilty of committing adultery with her in his heart? Anybody who envies their neighbor is guilty of 
stealing. Anybody who simply hates his brother is a murderer. You know what we said last week? We, we said all bad attitudes and all bad behaviors are extensions of our idolatry, but the behaviors are simply circumstantial most of the time. Now, here's what I mean. Here's why logically, you know, the Christian who's struggling with idolatry is no better than the pagan whose behavior is worse. So much of it is circumstantial. Let me just give you a couple examples. If you have, let's say, a 14-year-old girl who's struggling with envy and she is jealous of the most popular girl in class and so how does she take out her envy? She goes on social media and she says something awful and she spreads something terrible and she uses terrible names and, uh, you know, it's terrible, but that's kind of what most of social media seems to be. So, like, there's no, she's not going to get thrown in jail for it or anything. So, it just, it, that's what happens. Let's say you have a different example. A 50-year-old politician who um, is maybe losing in a race. And so, he or she, what they do is they dig up a bunch of the sordid details and uh, skeletons in the closet from the competing candidates past and they expose all those details and that's part of their campaign. Those, those past details have nothing to do with the candidate's platform or politics or anything like that. But it's, a, it's, a, a, it's an attack on their character from the deep past. And they gossip about it and they spread it out to the world as much as possible. Let me give you a third example. Let's say you have a gentleman who's, let's say, 25 years old, low income, lives kind of in the inner city, and he is envious of his friend's wealth and his girl and, you know, maybe he, he, you know, his, his lifestyle, his clothes, his shoes, his whatever. And the way that envy breaks out is he breaks it out in terms of maybe literally stealing some money from that guy or that guy's girl or uh, maybe it even, you know, escalates up to violence or something like that. Every one of us knows in all three of those circumstances, the public's reaction to that third guy's behavior is going to be significantly more severe because every society has different levels of tolerance and offense when it comes to public behaviors. But I also want you to see in all three instances, it's the exact same impulse. In each of those examples, you have envy in the heart that manifests manifests itself in a way that is common to its particular cultural setting in order to try to, through wickedness, exact some level of justice. One is more culturally acceptable than the other, but it's all the exact same impulse of envy. And here's the thing. We can, based on a bunch of different cultural circumstances or maybe through your own willpower, you can prevent yourselves from committing some some of the most obvious public behavioral indecencies, the murder and the stealing and the adultery. Uh, But when we demonstrate the same attitudinal dispositions of those behaviors, two things happen. When you have the same impulse, two things happen. Number one, you are, you are worthy of God's judgment just as much as somebody who has done the worst behaviors. Why? Because while human beings can only see the superficial and evaluate and judge on the basis of the superficial, God doesn't do that. God judges. He looks all the way down to the core and he looks to the heart. And God knows that behaviors are largely circumstantial. So he doesn't judge on the behaviors. He judges on the heart. The second thing that happens is when Paul says God's name is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of us, you see, when we have the exact same attitude and yet we think our behaviors are a whole lot better than everybody else's, that level of arrogance 
makes us worse. And the world can sense that. If we have the same basic attitude as the pagans, but with arrogance, we think we're better because of relatively better behavior. That condescension makes the name of Christ that much more unappealing to the world. And at that point, our relatively better behavior is not going to save us. And it only gives us a false sense of confidence and actually turns others off of Jesus Christ. This is, this is called moralism. Moralism is when you, you possess the same basic heart and the same basic attitude as the pagan world, even though your behaviors are relatively better and your knowledge is relatively better. How can you tell when you are a Christian who is functionally living your life as a moralist? You know what the test is? I can give you a couple. Here's one. I guarantee if you're functioning as a moralist in your life, you're going to struggle because it's performance-based identity. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to find yourself bragging to tell other people that you're better than others are. You're going to find yourself gossiping to tell other people how the other rest of the world is worse than you. You're going to be hypersensitive to everybody's criticism because you think that they're lowering your image, your performance-based image, and you're going to be constantly anxious because deep down inside you're going to know you're never good enough and you're afraid you're going to be exposed as a fraud. If you are struggling with bragging, gossiping, hypersensitivity, or anxiety, smug, judgmental, oversensitive, or anxious, that is exactly what I was. I don't know what I can say for you. That is exactly how I lived a good chunk of my life. Uh, That is exactly what I would look to diagnose a moralist who's masquerading as a Christian right now. So, false confidence in right teaching brings me to a second point. Dead orthodoxy and good practices. Sometimes people think they're right with God because of their proportionately better knowledge or because of their proportionately better behavior. At other times, people think they're right with God because they have checked the boxes of certain spiritual religious activities in their life and that makes them right with God. The example that the Apostle Paul uses in this particular text is this thing called circumcision. And what I need you to see is I'm convinced he's using circumcision as an example, kind of a metaphor for all religious practices. And here's what he writes. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, uh, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, they will be regarded as though they were circumcised, will they not? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the laws will condemn you even though you have the written code and you have circumcision because you are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew by what is done outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. You know where this really starts to get weighty and convicting? If you replace the word circumcision with any other kind of Christian practice, and you replace the word Jew with just like believer or Christian, So I could almost rewrite what the Apostle Paul is saying here and he says, so what if you're a member of a church? If your heart has not been affected by the good news of Jesus Christ. Follow that? So what if you have been confirmed? 
So what if you went to a Christian school? So what if your grandpa was a missionary? Could we even possibly say, so what if you were baptized? If eventually there is no, clearly no inner life that exists inside of you? So what if you've memorized a bunch of Bible passages? So what if you know a bunch of the tough answers to all the theological questions? So what if you call yourself a Christian? It means nothing if there is no vibrant inner life inside of you. Now see, every single one of those things, from church membership to confirmation to schools to baptism to Bible passages, all of them are designed to to teach you your salvation is not about what you do. It's not about your doing, it's about what Jesus Christ did for you. But here's how perverse the sinful human heart is. It has the temptation to take all of those acts and say, on the basis of those things, I deserve to be loved and accepted and blessed by God more than everybody else. And relying on religious performance absolutely kills faith. This is what's called, theologians call it, dead orthodoxy. Dead orthodoxy is when you have basic Bible doctrines that you agree to and routine religious practices that you regularly observe, but it's not making any kind of internal difference in your life. There's an intellectual grasp of the gospel in dead orthodoxy. There's just no heart revolution. And um, I want to give you a couple examples. I'm hesitant to do this because I just don't want to talk like negatively about it. But I think these are real things we got to watch out for. And some of this is going to resonate with you, maybe even your past. So one of the ways dead orthodoxy can manifest itself is through what I would call legalism. Legalistic churches uh, produce really detailed codes of conduct. Uh, they have laws for everything. They have policies for everything. The way you should look, the what you should wear, the way you should worship exactly. Uh, they, have, they have completely systematized doctrine all the way down to the nth detail on absolutely everything. And members at legalistic churches, they, they love to hear. They love to hear how much more accurate and how much more holy they are than everybody else. Uh, at that point, believe it or not, sound doctrine for them, equals righteousness. Uh, A slightly different example would be high emotion churches. Um, Fewer of you probably have some background with this, although some of you I know have told me some stories about backgrounds and and I think this is a particular temptation for those who maybe come from a charismatic background, sometimes those strong emotions. uh, There's an emphasis on miracles, there's an emphasis on spectacular works of God, there's an emphasis on emotional experiences and at that point, Strong feelings practically equal righteousness. Let me give you one more that uh, might come even closer to home. Clergy-dominant churches. Clergy-dominant churches put a huge emphasis on rituals and traditions whereby members have their guilt assuaged because they witness Uh, the grandeur and mystery of elaborate ceremonies performed on their behalf. And at some point, sometimes, those liturgical rituals equal righteousness. Now here's the thing. Here's the the caveat. Theological accuracy, gospel-driven emotion and affection, meaningful worship, those are great, great things. But remember what Paul said in Romans 1, 16 and 17. Your righteousness only comes through the gift of Jesus Christ. Remember what we talked about Luther a couple weeks ago? And we said in his kind of that that tower experience, 
Luther is reading through Romans and studying Romans 1, 16 and 17. And he at that point is living his life in total fear, in total guilt, in total anger by his own attestation before God. And remember, Luther at that time, he was born and raised in a Christian family. He went to a bunch of Christian schools. He was a monk who was teaching at a seminary. But he says that the gates of heaven, from his experience, weren't flung open for him by the angels until he realized what? Until he realized that his righteousness came not through what he knew, not through what he felt, and not through what he did. But the only righteousness that could possibly save him was the gift of righteousness that exclusively comes through the grace of Jesus Christ. When he realized it was not about what he did, what he felt, or what he knew, but about what Jesus did in his place, then the gates of heaven are flung open and he realized, I'm welcomed into heaven. Now, so here's the connection. This is why Paul is talking so much about the practice of circumcision. Why is he making such a big deal about this? It's an illustration. It's a metaphor for all like spiritual rituals and practices. Now, what was circumcision? In the Old Testament, um, you know, it was part of a covenant. What's a covenant? A covenant is like a very personal, intense agreement and transaction. And it typically had a visual, physical element that uh, whatever happened in that covenant, if you broke, if you didn't hold up your end of the covenant, the extreme result, the extreme consequence of whatever happened in the activity would come down upon you. So, for instance, maybe the most famous example of this is in Genesis 15. And it's God and it's Abraham. And, and God is reiterating to Abraham what he had already promised to him, but now they go through a covenant ceremony. And there was this ancient Near Eastern covenant ceremony in which to make a contract, to make a covenant, what they would do is they would take a bunch of animals, they would cut them up and slice them in half, and they would perform like, they would make an aisleway out of them. And the two people in the covenant would walk down that aisleway. And essentially what they were saying is, if I break the covenant. If I don't hold up my end of the covenant, whatever happens to these creatures, I want to happen to me. So they get sliced in half, they get slaughtered. If I don't hold up my end of the bargain, I deserve to get slaughtered in half. See? Now, God did not choose when he was reiterating the promise of uh, that, that Abraham would have a male heir and he would become a great nation and he would have a promised land and all nations on earth would be blessed through him and all that. He, he chose a specific ancient Near Eastern covenant for that. But he didn't choose that process of covenant for marking his chosen people. For marking his chosen people, he chose a different kind of covenant. It was called circumcision. Now, here's what circumcision was. Circumcision was for the male boys. Uh, You'd cut off a little piece. You cut off a little piece of those little boys or men who had converted. And God said, you know what? It's not going to kill you. It's not going to feel good. It's not going to kill you. It's going to hurt for a while. But it's not going to hurt you in the long run. And this will be my sign and mark that you are part of my people. But if if you don't hold up your end of the bargain... In this covenant, you know, (laughs) this covenant which you are reminded by every day, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to finish the job. I'm going to go further and I'm going to cut you off completely. Everybody got it. Every Jew, every Israelite completely understood it. And you fast forward to what Paul is saying to the Romans and he's saying that was a good covenant. That ceremony was valuable Circumcision was legitimately granted the Jews special status. What it didn't give the Jews, however, was automatic immunity from God's judgment. Circumcision, it was a blessing. 
It was a privilege, but it did not justify people before God. Only Jesus Christ can do that. Now, here's the thing. When you confuse the good things, even the rituals that God gives you, for God himself, when you exchange the, the blessings from God in exchange for the blesser, what does that sound like? That's exactly what the pagans did. They were exchanging love for the creator God for love for created things that they were putting ahead of God. It's, it's, Paul's describing and he's condemning the idolatry of religion. And I'll tell you what, you know how the story ends for the Israelites. They couldn't keep the Old Testament coven. They deserved to be fully cut off from God. But instead of getting up on them, instead of slaughtering them and cutting them off, God instead offers them even more grace than the grace he offered them before. And it's the same grace that he offers to us. It's the grace of a circumcised Savior. What does that mean? Well, if you let Paul, what he writes in Romans 2, let him explain it for himself, what he says in Colossians 2, it goes like this. He says, in Jesus, you are also circumcised with a circumcision that's not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also, notice he, these are past tense verbs. He says in God's sight because Jesus already did this, it's already counted as good. It's already to your credit. You are already buried with him. You are already raised with him. God's justification of you through Jesus is already a done deal in which you were raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul is saying, he's talking to Gentiles here, the Colossians. These are Gentiles, by the way, who have not experienced any kind of physical circumcision. And yet he says, in Christ, oh yeah, you were circumcised. What does he mean? He's saying on the cross, through Jesus Christ, you got saved because he cut Jesus off. See, that's why he's pointing to circumcision. On the cross, remember what Jesus cries out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, why did you leave me alone? My God, why have you abandoned me? My God, I'm in so much pain. I'm so scared. This is so terrible. I'm all alone. I don't know who I am. I don't know where I am. I've been completely and utterly cut off. It was bloody, it was violent, it was terrifying, it was torment. And you know what's happening there? Jesus is getting the ultimate curse of the circumcision that we deserved. At the cross, Jesus got ultimately cut off. It's the consequence of breaking the covenant so that everyone who trusts in him will be safe under his obedience to that covenant. Jesus got cut off so that by grace, we who have falsely been religious idolaters, if we can admit that. Jesus got cut off so that we could become reattached to God. And you know, I sometimes get the question, whenever it comes to circumcision, I almost invariably get this question. That is such, that is such a male thing. Why does circumcision, such a, why does God care about the little boys so much? Why doesn't he care about the girls? And what? Now, it's a, to understand it culturally, I mean, it's, it's a long convoluted answer that understands requires understanding gender roles in an ancient like patriarchal society. Here's the shorter answer that I think tells it. 
Uh, is circumcision still a covenant that God requires for his people yet today, for believing people still today? No. It's still a fairly common practice in the world for a variety of different reasons, but it's not a ceremony that is required to be part of God's people today. And God knew that. In other words, he gave this covenant understanding that it was not an end in and of itself. It was a ceremony that was designed to point ahead to something else. Why there was a bunch of ancient Near Eastern covenant-making ceremonies. Why did he choose circumcision? Because who was he pointing ahead to? Not just a random person, a male. Uh, a male offspring more desired, more de beloved than Abraham's son, who would bring forth a nation more glorious than Abraham's nation, who loved us enough to get cosmically cut off all the way in our place. Very clearly, circumcision is designed by God to point ahead to a greater covenant that ushered in the male son of God, our substitute and savior. Now, what does all this mean? Here's what it means. Bible knowledge is great and solid doctrine is great and spiritual rituals are great and moral behaviors are great and they are privileges to be humbled by and they are blessings to be thankful for. You know what they are not though? They are not reasons to boast. If you want to boast, boast that God is so gracious that he chose to love, forgive, and embrace a religious hypocrite like me. I totally was that. Now, I specifically chose the word me there because I'm not going to say it on your behalf. I want, if you believe it, you can say it on your behalf. Boast that God is so gracious that he chose to love, forgive, and embrace a religious hypocrite like me. You know what Paul said earlier? He said to the, the Jewish Christians in Rome, my name, God's name is blasphemed amongst the watching world because of you. If you are redeemed from being a religious hypocrite, redeemed by the grace of Jesus Christ, your life mission moving forward then is what? Cause God's name to be praised amongst the Gentiles, amongst the pagans, amongst the watching world, tell them how far you sunk and how deep Jesus went to rescue you and lift you up to heaven. Tell them of God's grace on your behalf. Let's close with the prayer. Lord Jesus, we are, I want to make this clear, we are thankful for doctrine, we are thankful for emotion, we are thankful for spiritual activity, but if that ever becomes a way that we try to justify ourselves and get proud, uh, if these things make us feel superior, then let them be damned. May we only find rest and confidence, life and hope in the gift, the gift of your righteousness. In your name we pray, amen.